Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. I'm joined by Rashna Basin. She works with multiple public companies and private companies and startups around advisory. How are you doing today, Rashna? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So I want to start here. I know you mentioned to me in our pre-conversation that you were raised in New Zealand and you recently got back from a trip from there. How was the trip? What did you? What were you doing while you were out there? I did. Yes, I was born in India, but grew up in New Zealand. It was great. We had a full family reunion for a couple of weeks down there, which was the first time after COVID. So great to see family, my parents and corrupt my nieces and nephews and enjoy summer, which is in December, January down there and do some hiking and enjoy the nature. Yeah, I've been told by a lot of people that have traveled down there, whether it be for business or pleasure, that it's one of it's obviously a very long trip, but that it's one of the most wonderful places, especially for Americans. There's so much to do. There's great food. Obviously, the scenery is amazing. If you had to put a little bit of a spin on why go down to New Zealand, why visit it, what would you say is the number one reason? Well, it's hard to give one reason. I'd probably say if I could squeeze in two, I'd probably say just the culture, like it's in New Zealand, Kiwi can do attitude, very friendly, down to earth. And then coupled with compact nature playgrounds. So you've got mountains and ocean and all kinds of nature in a very compact space. You can drive across one island in a day when you can see winter and summer in in the same day. A lot of Americans ask me if it's like Lord of the Rings and it is. So it's a magical place. That's amazing. So born in India, you're in New Zealand, you've obviously come to America. We're going to talk a little bit about globalization, but I'm just so interested what you do for work and how you've gotten involved with all of these different types of companies. And I think one of the things that comes to my mind that's so interesting is that you're working with public companies, right? You're working with private companies and you're working with startups across multiple industries and so many different challenges. So I think my first question that comes to mind is how do you manage and compartmentalize all those different scales and scopes and different maturity points of these companies and handle that on a day-to-day basis? It's complicated. There's definitely some switching costs as you go from a really early startup to a publicly traded company. But on the other hand, there's lots of pattern recognition and similar things like recession, inflation, remote work, COVID. So there's a lot of similarities in what the companies are going through. They're obviously at different funding stages or public versus at very early private, but they all face like very similar in the marketplace. So there's actually a lot of over overlap. I love that. When you are evaluating these types of opportunities, is there a specific criteria that you follow or is there anything that is really a big priority, whether it be industry founder, where they're at in their life cycle challenge, what stands out to you as criteria for you in terms of acceptance and working together as an advisor? Yeah, on the advisory side, I think a lot of it for me is the founder and the founding team, especially if they've worked together before. I feel like that's a really nice thing. So founders, and then am I excited about the idea that that they're in? I've done a lot of work in tech and media, but I've done some advisory and sustainability companies like Pangaea and other non kind of tech and media companies. So that's been interesting for me as well to learn and scale my, my knowledge. And then I think it's the energy, like being part of an early stage is really fun because you're growing a company 
and very different than being part of a public company board. We are overseeing governance and making sure the right processes are followed and we're looking out at strategy and long range planning for a company. You get to have a very different engagement with a company, whether if it's five people or 5,000 people. Wow, I love that. That's fascinating. You've been in corporate roles prior to moving into this primarily advisor role. I believe you were the chief business officer at Magic Leap. That's a pretty unique title. Not every company has that. I've seen chief revenue officer, chief sales officer, chief operations officer. Can you delineate the difference for me on on, on a chief business officer and maybe what the scope of that role entailed at Magic Leap? Yeah, I think that I think chief business officer is becoming more and more common. For the role at Magic Leap, it was around a couple of key responsibilities. One was business development. So all the deals that we had to build the product, build the Magic Leap glasses, but also distribute them. And then all the content relationships and partnerships on the device. So we did deals with the NBA, the New York Times, a bunch of brands that were important to showcase that what the technology can do. And then we did quite a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So acquiring companies, acquihires for talent, clusters of talent that we needed quickly. And we really decided that we were going to find the companies with the best talent versus having them all come to Fort Lauderdale, which is an unusual location for a big startup in tech. Sure. I remember I've been out in this area for about 16, 17 years now, and Magic Leap is one of the first companies I can think of that really embedded themselves as a big time technology company. Obviously there's Citrix, there's UKG, but Magic Leap almost had the, a startup type resonance to it and really a lot of mystery around it too. So I remember at the time when the, when the company really started to take off, there was no shortage of people that were clamoring in this community to work. And then, of course, I think there was really a national strategy around bringing talent, no matter where from, to be able to enhance the company and take it to the next level, which I find to be super interesting because you and I shared some philosophy on the globalization of talent and the importance of the globalization of talent. You've obviously lived in multiple countries. You've obviously been in the U.S. for quite some time now. Why do you think talent with global experience maybe has a leg up on somebody that's only lived domestically in, in one country throughout their career? Yeah, well, I probably have a bit of bias being an Indian from New Zealand, and I've lived and worked in New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong, and the last 20 years or so in the States. So I feel like I come with a bit of a global lens. And to some companies, especially in America, because the market is pretty homogenous and big, it's a big enough market. Whereas if you grew up in New Zealand, like a population of 5 million isn't really big for a lot of businesses. So you have to think a little bit more globally and internationally than you do in America. So for some American companies, I feel like Hawaii or Canada is their international strategy. So I think in this era, as you can see with our alliance on Taiwan and also with China, like there's a lot more importance being placed on building and securing talent in various countries. I think COVID was a real accelerant of that as well in, in terms of remote work. And as everyone figures out how they're going to do their back to work strategy, they've got folks that have moved to different cities and countries that don't really want to come back. So that's going to be an interesting approach. But I think it's important now when you can pop up a new company using AWS and a bunch of skills, you can have a global direct-to-consumer brand and you can service in multiple countries. It's important to be thinking internationally sooner rather than later. And so having that constituent, similar to having diverse labor force, have, try to have the constituents within the company almost match your customer base. So you're thinking about how they think and building a business that's going to be sustainable. I really love that. And I think one of the things that's interesting with the globalization, not one of the challenges, but one of the important things is understanding the social norms of different cultures and the nuances with that and being able to be adaptive for that. I've read numerous studies about how people in the Netherlands are very different than the Japanese, than American. And if you have a truly global company, your ability to understand that and leverage it to the company's enhancement and to the company's benefit, I think is a really important thing. So I totally agree with you on globalization. It also leads into 
the idea of diversity and inclusion and the importance of that. It's obviously been something that's been a very hot topic for the last five, 10 years, but it's to me, it's something that's intrinsic and very important to the best of companies, not just diversity from race or gender or religion perspective, but really from a diversity of experience and thought. I just think the most important thing is really making sure that inclusion is part of it and not just diversity standalone. You and I shared some thoughts on that. How important do you think it is to make sure that there's inclusive practices along as having, as well as having a diverse workforce? And do you see that those two things being separated, you can be equally as successful? Yeah, I think that's an interesting, an interesting area that, as you said, is becoming increasingly important as some states mandate and funds are mandating diverse candidates on their boards. And so that's becoming a bit more rigorous in terms of how it's structured. For me, inclusion is really the longevity metric of diversity. You can hire a diverse workforce, and I'm not just talking about gender, but the way people think, where they're from. There's a lot of different ways to classify diversity. You could say me being an Indian in Silicon Valley isn't actually diverse. So there's a lot of different ways to think about what diversity is. And for me, I think inclusion is once you get a diverse candidate that you want into the organization, are they staying there or are they leaving after a certain period of time? And I think so not only tracking where in the organization these candidates are coming in, but are they? is there a retention metric around them? Do they feel like once they get there, in the tech group, you know, that they feel included because a lot of, I think you can lose a lot of diverse talent. So you can have churn in the organization on that front pretty easily if there's not a culture that is, makes the diverse candidates feel welcome and accepted and included in the process. Yeah, I love the term longevity metric because I totally agree with you, right? If you're just hiring diverse people and you think you're checking a box, but not including inclusive practices or even belonging practices, that person's not going to stay there very long. And then you're moving on and trying to check a box again. These two things have to be integrated and hand in hand to be successful and to get the most out of a diverse workforce. Totally agree with you on that. I love it. So I want to jump into the hiring because that's what this podcast is about. I know that you've probably been involved with thousands of hires throughout your career. At some level, you're evaluating companies right now, right? And that you want to work with, that you think have that longevity, have that sustainability, have that upside. So I'm really thrilled to get into this. I want to know in terms of when you're hiring, do you have a general overall philosophy on the type of talent that you want to work closely with or that you want to bring onto your team? Yeah, I think for me, depending on the role that we're hiring for, I think it's important to have the capability. So do they have the, are they, do they have the talent to succeed in the role? I think that's obviously important. I have a bit of bias having an MBA. I go and look at the the pedigree of the school and that's my own bias. But then I usually look for something a little bit different. And especially when this gets to diversity and succession planning, I like resumes where it's, I don't know, Harvard, Morgan Stanley. I like to look at a candidate that's taken a leap or got into a really good school that was not not a feeder school or a recognized school or somebody that took a risk and took a leap into a company that really gave them new skills or tested them a bit. And it's going to be interesting because then I do have a bias if somebody's changing jobs every year, I feel like that to me still feels really fast. Although with this next generation, I think the data is that people are going to have 20 jobs in their lifetimes. Like it's an almost an annual, they change annually. So I think finding that sweet spot where people are excited about the job, capable with the job. Sometimes it's a stretch if you can afford to do that, that it's a growth for somebody either internally or externally. I like to look at internal candidates a lot as well, because I think they often get left out of the process. But even if it's a little bit of a stretch and I can afford to have a little bit of risk in that hire, but it gives them a really big stretch role. And I think that they can do it. I like to go for the underdog a little bit more than I guess normal. Ooh, I love that. I'm going to come back to stretch role in a second. I think you said something really fascinating with regards to 
people, when we look back 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, longevity at a company, right? When when mom and pop worked at a company or grandma and grandpa worked at a company, they typically stayed there for a very long time. And you hear the stories of working somewhere for 30, 40 years and then getting the gold watch in your retirement. And things have fundamentally changed from a lot of different perspectives, whether it be the great resignation or whether it be empowerment of employees, you are seeing more people jumping. It could even be something in terms of economic conditions. And I think it's important that we look at those things with a little bit more of a nuanced look. At the same time, when I see somebody that is advanced in their career with one company and moved up the chain or continues to take on advanced levels of roles, that's always a sign, a great sign or predictor of potential success. Now, you want to dive into all of these things when you're interviewing because I've seen some situations where you would think that, but it's not always the case. But I think it's really important that we start to keep an open mind about that because the things are changing and the world is changing and the business is changing. So it's important that we keep our mind on that. Um, If I ask you, you walked out of a great interview, right? What happened in that interview? Why would you feel good about it? Is it the type of rapport you built? Is it the experience? Is it a great answer to a question? What makes you feel good when you walk out of an interview and you're like, I like that person? Yeah, I think it's a little bit what I said earlier. Do I feel like they're capable? I have a, again, this is probably a pet peeve of mine of punctuality. So I like someone to be on time. I like them to have their resume handy because you can assume everybody that's hiring, especially in a high growth company is really busy. Usually I've looked at the resume earlier, but it's nice to have a copy of it. I like to hear that somebody's done some research on the company or the role and they can apply their skills to it. So someone that's been thoughtful isn't just coming in and you get the feeling that they're doing 50 interviews to take whatever job they can get. And then again, old fashioned to me, I was always like a follow up. Thank you for your time. I try to do that when I even do business meetings or I meet somebody who's been helpful to me, like sending a thank you email pretty within 24 hours. I like to do that. And I encourage that even with my team when we're doing deals, like when you've had a meeting follow up. And so I like that as well in offering the references and knowing really asking good questions about the job, which just doesn't mean they're checking a box. And if you get the feeling they're just going to take whatever job, they just want a job, but that doesn't resonate well. I want to go back to what you talked about on stretch, right? Giving somebody an opportunity internally that might be a little bit above and beyond what their current role is and seeing if they can grow into it. What are the behavioral attributes of somebody that they need to have to be able to reach that potential, to be able to grow into a role and be able to successfully perform in the mid and long term? Are there specific behavioral attributes that, that stand out to you that are important? Yeah, I think it's interesting being technically capable, as I've said, is important. At some point, I think as you get more senior, the EQ, which is, I call my company EQ Partners, but the EQ kind of kicks in and you've got to be more savvy across the organization. The bigger the organization is and the less higher up you are, you have to build your internal kind of base of influence. So having somebody that I've had really smart people work for me before, but I'm sure they won't get as far as the slightly less smart, but higher EQ person who can go and build those relationships. I have one woman who I've mentored for a long time and she's killing it. But I said to her, go have coffee with people that you might going to be in conflict with and buy them a coffee. It's six, it's probably $10 now with inflation and everything. But go sit down and take somebody for 30 minutes. It's much harder for them to say no to you when you've built a relationship with them. And also you get to know who they are and what they're working on. So she's come back to me multiple times and said that was some of the best kind of advice that you gave me just If you're going to have to work with someone in another group or you're going to need to rely on someone, just buy them a $8 coffee or whatever it costs now. And I think that goes a long way. 
Wise words from an expert negotiator. I'm sure you've had many people sitting across the table that there was conflict with and building that bridge is so important to be able to come to outcomes that are going to make. I don't want to say win-win because I think that's so cliche, but just something mutually beneficial that everybody's engaged and excited about. So I think that is wonderful advice. When you're interviewing, do you have a favorite question you like to ask or a pet question? I have a tricky one that I like sometimes, which is like, how do you define success in life? And I think it's a tricky one, but it opens up. You always ask all the regular questions, but for me, it's what are people looking to achieve in their life? And it's not just on the work dimension, it's on family and lifestyle and all those other pieces. So that kind of opens up a more organic, non-canned. And so I really, again, get to get a feel of who the person is, what they value, what their values are, how they're trying to balance maybe having two kids at home and a career, or they've got lots of elderly parents, or what's their focus in their life and how do you measure success? There's a great Clay Christensen article on how do you measure your life, which is always a good one to go back and look at. But I like asking a random question like that's really broad, but you get a lot of the soft data back on how people are thinking and how they live their lives. I really love that. We're going to role play right now. I'm going to answer that question and then I'm going to ask it back to you because I want to learn a little bit more. <laughs> Let me get my answer. How do I define success in life? I think my primary objective is I want my four children. I want all four of them to achieve more than myself, both personally and professionally. That's when I'll feel good about what I've achieved in life, if I can look back on that. And there's a two parts to that. One is going to be obviously setting a bar that's pretty damn high for them to be able to reach and achieve over. And then the second part of that is enabling them and empowering them to, to have that success, whatever lane that might be, right? It could be politics, it could be technology, it could be fashion. It doesn't matter to me. I just, I really want to set the bar for them and I want them to be able to leap above that bar. And that, if I look back when I'm 85, 90 years old and I can say that, I'll feel really good about what I've accomplished. How would you define success, Roshna? It's a great question. As I said, I think for me, it's probably multifaceted at this stage of my career. I think it's, you go through an earlier stage of your career where you're achieving and it's a little bit more ego-based. And as you get more senior, you have the ability to give back. And I think being an Indian woman in tech and media, I have more opportunities than most because there is a desire for a lot of women coming up in the organization to be mentored or seek help. And so I find myself, some people joke with me, but I probably get 20, 30 requests a week just for help, or I'm looking for a job, or can you help mentor me? And so I think doing a bit more of that service along the way is important. Although I do, I am tough on my crew. I do ask them to, if somebody, they get a job from somebody that I've referred them to or an internship, to, I make them send a thank you card. I even do that to my niece. So I think that's really important. And I think at this point, the luxury of time and choice, I think being able to pick the companies I work with and the people I spend my time with is a measure of success for me. It's not so much how much money is in the bank, but that I'm good and that I can start to choose where I spend my energy and who I spend my time with. So I think that's, for me, a measure of success. I really love that. All right, I'm going to take this in a very different direction. Here's a little bit of a curveball for you. You brought up being Indian multiple times. I'm half Indian. I have a lot of pride in that side of my world and my life. I was obviously, my mother's Indian. I grew up in very close to the Indian community. And what I take a lot of pride in is I see Indians succeeding in all different facets of life over the last two, three decades, specifically CEOs, right? Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadala, Indra Nuri. Is that just a coincidence that's happened over the last 10, 15 years? Or do you think that there's something there? What, what's your take on that? I don't think so. I too have noted like how successful these guys have been in running like major tech companies in Silicon Valley. I do think there's a big immigrant thread through that. I'm, an, I'm a double immigrant. I moved to New Zealand. My parents moved to New Zealand and then I moved to America. So I really relate to the immigrant child growing up with where your parents has everything to give you a better education. And so I think there's definitely was pressure on 
to achieve. I think the achievement metrics were strong growing up. And then I think it's also interesting if you look at those, look at those, those Indian immigrants, most of them are CEOs. There's not that many actually that are founders. So Hmm. there's something interesting about them running the companies very successfully, I think, versus founding them. And I don't know what the secret source is or what the cause of that is, but I have noted that a lot of them have. Sundar was on our board at Magic Leap for a while. He got promoted into the CEO role. He's not Sergey or Larry. And so I think that's interesting. And I think also just knowing going to India growing up, IIT is harder to get into than Harvard and a lot of schools. So I think you're really there really is the pressure on academic and technical achievement. And so that pedigree, I think, when you look at resumes, an IIT resume stamp is very impressive. But again, as you get higher, you have to build, make sure you've got the EQ's talent. You can't just be the best coder in the world. That's exactly what I want to point out. I think the thing that excites me the most about it is, and I don't want to generalize, but I'm generalizing a little bit here. I love your take on the immigrant story and overcoming that and what that means and what that can mean for somebody in terms of their career. But traditionally, and I'm generalizing a little bit, but Indians have been known to be technical. They've been known to be analytical. And when you look at Sundar, when you look at Satya, when you look at Indra, they are beloved as people leaders and understanding that component of it. So to me, that's exciting. And to be an effective CEO, that is just cost of admission. You have to have that high EQ tied to that high IQ. And that's with any CEO. So totally noticed that same thing. A really interesting point you made about not necessarily always founders, but being CEOs running the company. Hopefully I can change that trend. Let me ask you, we all have missed on hiring. So I'm asking you to look back retrospectively. When you've missed, what typically happened? Is there a thread? Is there a theme or anything that you can point to? So you mean when I've hired somebody and it's kind of a mistake? Yeah, when it hasn't worked out, have you been able to pinpoint something that you missed during the process that you'd relook at? Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably my own unconscious bias a little bit. I think you look at a resume or you get a reference from somebody and you're really negatively biased, probably positively in this case, and then you look for cues that kind of validate you. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important not only to have other members of your team kind of interview that person but other members of the organization that they might interact with a lot. So if they're going to be doing technical BD, you want them to meet the engineering team and get a read from them. And I'm usually glasses three quarters full or fully full. So I like to have some of the folks that I would say are glasses half empty or there's no water in the glass. I like to have the different kind of views come in and evaluate the candidate. But I think it's probably you come in with bias within the first few minutes, you see somebody, if they look well-dressed and well-spoken, you're validating what you're on paper. And again, if they're late and disheveled and they don't really know what the job is or they don't know your name, you go the other way pretty quickly and you want to get out of the interview and not have your time wasted. Confirmation bias, I think, is one of the biases that most impact poor hiring. I give a story about myself as somebody that interviews a lot. This was only last week. I interviewed somebody. I think feel pretty highly about this person. It was referred by somebody in our company that I think highly of. And so that went in with a confirmation there. And then when we were talking, really loved the mentality. And then he started talking about how we played basketball. And I played basketball and he was a point guard and I was a point guard. And I asked him to compare his game to somebody. He said, Steve Nash, I'm a Phoenix Suns fan. And then he said something to me that he liked being a point guard because he's distributing to others and letting them shine. And that was something that really stood out to him. That is like a personal philosophy of mine. And so what I realized after the fact is I'm like, move this person along. I love them. But then there have been some criteria that I didn't really hit in the interview that I wish I would have. And that's because I got so excited about somebody mirroring my philosophies or my background that maybe glossed over some different items that might've been some ones I should have dug more in. So I actually did follow back up and started to dig into that, but it's just really important that we look after an interview, whether we feel good or we feel bad, 
that we analyze our biases, especially the ones that we like to hire people that are like us at the end of the day. And so it's important yeah. to check that at the door because those are not always the best hires. Do you agree? I totally agree. And I think sometimes recently it's been accelerated or amplified a bit because it's been really hard to hire great talent. So you have these, if you have multiple roles to fill and you almost can't stop your day job to hire the people to fill those roles because you need them so badly. So I think it's going to be interesting now with certainly in the tech space with the layoffs that we've had to see what happens to the talent pool. Yeah. Let's talk about that real quick because that's current events right now. And we've seen a lot of layoffs in the tech space. Do you see that as being maybe a correction to the pandemic when technologies were technology companies were really taking off and they were doing a lot of hiring and obviously putting out a lot of compensation out there and then maybe this is a correction or do you think this is more symptomatic of something longer term? I think it's, I think there are definitely some companies and you can say Zoom and Peloton that really peaked through COVID and I think they decided, they thought that their steady state peak of COVID was going to be the business steady state. Meanwhile, they're also getting penalized for supply issues and not having enough inventory. And then I think everybody's just gone through that where there's oversupply. So I think that for some of them, it was like COVID, the tailwinds of COVID. I think it's interesting. I haven't dug in yet, really. It'll be interesting to see for the layoffs, like where are they in the tech? Are they? I don't think good engineers are getting laid off. I don't think good developers are getting laid off. I think it's marketing, sales, some of the people that are support the business versus that build the product. So I think it'll be interesting to see who's being laid off, unless you're Twitter, I think, which is laying off a lot all across the board. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And then, as I said, when you couple that with remote work and you can hire the best talent almost anywhere. And if you're a good developer, you can pretty much decide where you want to live and how much you're getting paid. I don't think that's going to change. I think there's still a requirement for that. But you may look in Israel for talent. You may look in India. You, know, you may look in New Zealand. There's clusters of talent. Sweden has got a nice nice tech cluster. Ukraine actually did. So I think there's more reach in terms of where you can build and create talent. Yeah, I'd say Twitter is definitely a unique use case right now, or a case study right now, just in terms of what all that company's been going through over the past six to 12 months. I'm going to ask one more question about hiring, and this is a little bit off script, but in terms of you work with a lot of technology companies, a lot of startups, obviously technology is very paramount to you and your career all throughout your career. If you're thinking about the number one desire of a software developer, a very talented software developer, right? We hear about all the perks and the benefits, the free lunch, the flexibility. What do you think is the number one? If you're advising a founder and saying, hey, listen, you have to have this to get the best in class talent. Is it as simple as just saying money or is there something more underlying that you've seen throughout your career that's a better predicator of bringing great talent in the software side of your organization? I think it's comp. I think really good developers want freedom and flexibility. So they might want to be in Vermont in their ski, like in the dark, that's just a generalized, but they might, they don't want to be told, come into the office five days a week at 8am. You're not going to get those. That's not the culture and that's not what's going to resonate with them. So I think figuring out who your lead is on that, on the technical side and really resonating with that. You can even say some folks are like, let's drug test everyone. Probably not for a lot of, a lot of tech talent. That's sure. probably not something you want to do, but I think a lot of the ones that are really good, they just really want to code and quiet it whenever they want. And it might be 2 PM to 10 PM. And so I think being aware of that culture and kind of enabling and supporting it versus being, you have to come into the office. And I think a lot of the older generation of leaders seeing how, you know what the back to work requirements are a lot of them are the ones that are like come back we almost don't trust the kids to come to work unless they're in front of us we don't trust them that they're going to work so I think that's going to be a big cultural kind of 
falling out that's happening with the banks requiring folks to come in. And I do think there's some value in being in the office if you're in, in the learning scale, being around senior talent and your managers, you learn how to hold meetings and behave and you learn a lot of things by being around, being in the office. But I think if I was to hire the best coders in the world, they might be sitting in Vermont, they might be sitting in Israel, they might be sitting in New Zealand, it's figuring out what drives them. And I don't think it's always the most money. I think it's the, the flexibility and the freedom. And they want to work on cool stuff. So if it's a project that they feel resonates with them and is exciting. And a lot of them will say, if I don't have to work with clients, I can just work and build a product. The client you're developing for as an agency or something, if they all don't want to work with clients and have to deal with all of that. So if you can give them a cool project on their time in their location, I think, and you know that they're good and they'll deliver and they can build the agile kind of remote teams. I think that's the win. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. I, it's not that I don't think compensation and equity and perks are nice, but really, if you ask me what is the most important things to the best technologists is that trust and flexibility that you talked on and working on cool shit. Like they want to be challenged. They want to work with bleeding edge technology. They want to be doing things that are going to be really changing the world, transformative, and are really going to have a big impact. And that, listen, that's not just technologists. That's probably most people in any job, in any function. People want to be part of something bigger than themselves and work on challenging cool things. But this is great advice. And for anybody listening, business leaders, CEOs, whatever it may be, this is advice from somebody that's advising tons of companies, a high growth company. So this is great stuff for people. I really appreciate you sharing. I had dropped this question previously because when I asked people what a day in the life of their job is, I would hear meetings. And that's common with most people at a senior level. I'm interested to ask you though, because you have such a diversity of companies that you work with in your portfolio. Is there a standard day? Is it all different? Is it always just meetings? Like how much is the interaction in person? Walk me through what maybe a day in the life is and if it's any different than just meeting after meeting. Yeah, I would say no day is the same, really. I think it's changed a bit because I started EQ Partners at the end of 18, which is we hit COVID pretty quickly through 20. And so I didn't have the luxury of being on site board meetings in person or going to see like startups that I'm working with live, which I really enjoy doing and get a lot of energy from. I'm on two public company boards in the US and one in Singapore and then two private companies, Vice Media and Audio Mac, which is a New York-based music service. And so every, and then I'm advising six or seven startups. So it really, every day could be different. I just had an audit committee call for one board, public company board. I'm doing a podcast with you. This morning, I was reaching out to some investors for a company I'm helping raise some money. I was in LA last week with two of my two companies I'm working with. At the end of the month, I'm, I'll be in Singapore. So I like the, like I said, jumping around a little bit. There definitely are switching costs, but like I said, there's similar narratives going on globally that you can draw on from one to the other. Yeah, I really love that. And that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask you, in 2018, you decide, because most people I know that hold board roles, they have what you would call a day job. Very few are able to make that their focus unless they're very later in their career, usually. Was, there, was it just the appetite or the market demand that led you to, to found EQ and, and make advising kind of your full-time day-to-day? Or was there something, was it that draw to wanting to be challenged by different companies in different industries? What caused you to take that leaping off point and make this your entire focus in advising companies? Yeah, I would say some of it was accidental. Like I left Magic Leap and I wanted to take a little bit of a break. I joined the Ryman Hospitality Board, which is a REIT in Nashville. And then I joined Shutterstock after I left, actually. We had talked about me joining while I was at Magic Leap, but I, the days were relentless and I said I would be a terrible board member back then and then I was friends with Mira Duma who's a founder she was about to start a company in sustainable fashion at that point in material science and sustainable fashion called Pangaea and she called me I told her I was like stepping down from Magic Leap and asked me to come and help her with that which was really fun and took a chunk of 2019 and that's grown to a couple of hundred people now and and uh, we've 
had Jaden Smith and Pharrell wearing it and investing in the company. And it was like athleisure wear to start with. And that just took off in COVID. So that was really fun with a female founder to start to build a company from the early on days. And now it's amazing to see how well it's done. And she's working on another startup. And so then the other opportunities really, people will say, which encounter do I talk to? But it's really been people I've worked with before or, or who've known me through jobs and so forth that have reached out to say, hey, I've got this company. Could you take a look at it? And so some of it was organic. And then it's been interesting doing the public boards and then offsetting that with the equity from earlier stage companies who you really mostly get paid in equity versus cash. And you can do the public boards to keep the lights on. And then instead of having equity in one company, if you have a what I call a proper job, you can get a few pieces of equity from six or seven startups. So it's still, you're rolling the dice, but you've got almost a portfolio versus your stock in one company. Yeah. Uh, and you get the flexibility of, I get to mostly schedule the days that I, the way, the ways that I want. So that's been a nice kind of premium. There may still be a proper job in me, but I would say at this point, the conditions would have to be really perfect. I'd have to love the company and the team and, and have, and be really excited about it, but it's pretty engaging, but it's not too crazy. And as I said, there's lots of things you can learn from one company that can be applied to another. Yeah. Diversifying your portfolio. It's a sound investment strategy. It's sound for you as well. I think it's really smart. I have so many things I want to ask you. Here's an offhand question. Public companies, is the board role just so much more structured and regimented, obviously, than a startup? Or is it a lot more like or dissimilar than I would think? Yeah, board, a public board role, you have the governance role of overseeing the company. So it's there's a three or four, there's three, usually three committees that, and you join one or two or three of them. There's 10Q filings, especially if you're on audit. So there's a lot more governance. I'd say a lot of it, it looks, a bunch of it's governance and then a bunch of it is strategy, helping the CEO. You're not running the business, so you're not on the field, you're on the sidelines. But talking about generative AI, which is happening all over the place, how do we think about that? In, in the media industry, what's going to happen to royalty reportings? Should we be acquiring or partnering with somebody in that space to kind of future-proof some of the companies? So you can straddle governance, which is your day job, but then also being a sounding board and with the wider perspective that you have on the day-to-day, -day, looking at multiple com companies and industries is just sharing, hey, we're doing this with remote work in Singapore. It really worked. Maybe this is something interesting we could try here. I love that. I could talk. I could ask you questions all day. This is so fascinating to me. I know you don't have, I, I know your time is limited though. So I want to make sure I get through these last two. Are is there anything you're working on right now that you're especially juiced about? Whatever you can share about, maybe it's a specific company or another female founder or anything that you're just, you're getting up in the morning and it's one of the most exciting things you got going on. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I spent so long in technology and then most recently Magic Leap, which is very technical and augmented reality. I think I've really had an interesting time. I'm really interested in like, mental health and wellness right now and anxiety, depression, PTSD, kids coming out of COVID, like adults, like in just the big farmer and how they'll put you on an antidepressant kind of for life. So I've really been doing a bit of research actually in plant-based medicines and psychedelics. So I'm quite fascinated about that space. And as that evolves and becomes more legal across the board, but I like the idea of plant-based medicine and which has been around for a long time. It just got a bit of a bad rep in the sixties for a while. But I find that I'm finding that space really interesting. And it's the opposite of going from VR or augmented reality to plant-based medicine. It's got a complete 360, but I'm finding that space to be very interesting. But also people are really depressed and anxious. And there's a lot of stuff going on with a lot of people right now. And so that to me feels like a purpose-led kind of area to focus on.
I really love that. It's something that I've been fascinated with. I think I first heard about the use of psychedelics to, to enhance and to unlock and to take you out of these depression and these different mental health issues from Tim Ferriss many years ago on his podcast. I think he interviewed somebody that was talking about the benefits of it. And then not more and more, you're starting to see this snowball of these social paradigms we have around demonizing certain things or putting stigmas on certain things and realizing that actually these things can help quite a bit. And these things when used in the right amount and in the right controlled areas can be really beneficial. And so I'm fascinated by that too. That's pretty awesome. That's, it is very different than what you've been working with from a technology perspective. It might be the complete opposite, but still very important in our current times. And to your point, you know, I just think we're going to be dealing with, I think everybody knows, I don't, I'm not breaking any news here. We're going to be dealing with the ramifications of COVID for a long time, right? That was such a black swan event that is going to lead to so many, I think, positive things, which I think we've already seen, but also there's going to be some long-term derelicts and negative effects. And I think our ability to fight against that and explore different ways to fight against that is going to be a pretty big frontier. Like you, I'm very fascinated by it. So I appreciate you bringing it up. All right, last question. If you were to amplify one nugget of career advice that you did not have early in your career that you know now, what would that be? I think coming out of, I moved to the States end of 99 and I did my MBA at HBS. And there's always something that's trendy at the time, either it's to go to consulting or go to investment banking. And I think when we were coming out, we had a market crash, but Siebel Systems was the hot company to go to. There's, yeah, there's, I worked um, on Siebel back in 2004. Yeah. That was the original Salesforce. Yeah, exactly. I flew there to interview and I was like, I'm not really into this. It's not, it doesn't just make my day to think about the Siebel System universe. So I think it's like not following the herd mentality. If you have a passion and a purpose or you can connect to that earlier, like you don't, you almost have to shut off the noise and what all your friends are doing or what the herd mentality is doing. And I went into tech right out of business school. And then I ended up taking a job at EMI Music when I moved to LA and it was the beginning of digital and I got paid terribly, but I learned so much and I worked so hard that really elevated me quickly in the organization. I actually didn't want to tell people I had an MBA from HBS because it was almost negative to be in the music business <laughs> and have a bus business degree. So I hit it. But I was up all night figuring out how to get the first album onto iTunes. It was right at the beginning of that period that just oh, to wow. date myself. But I was really excited about music and tech in that way. And also I had the role of inter running international for the catalog. And getting back to the international point, no one in the U.S. had gone to visit a lot of the territories. So I went and got on the plane and I went to from France to Italy, just to Europe, even they were so happy that somebody from like the mothership had come to visit. And that really helped me be successful in my role because, again, I went to dinner, went to coffee, got to know the people. And then when we wanted to release an album like Nick and Cole in Spanish, we did all these things that I don't think we could have done if I hadn't got on the plane and built those relationships. So I think a part of it's just don't go with the herd mentality. Think about what you what really gets you excited and what connects with your purpose and just do that early if you can figure that out. I love that you spent such an early part of your career, formative part of your career in the music business and probably saw so many cool different things and the kind of the nexus of technology there. I bet if you could take a time machine and go back to that Siebel interview, you'd tell them, hey guys, maybe think about the cloud. That might be something that's coming up yeah. that you want to be part of. Totally. Uh, things totally. might be different. Wow, Rajna, listen, you are incredible. I really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us, taking time out of your busy day. I know that there's going to be a lot of people who love this episode and, and get a lot out of it. So just thanks so much for spending the time and uh, look forward to chatting. Yeah, thank more. you for having me. Thanks for having me. I, All right, I enjoyed it. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.